Happy New Year, and welcome to the Highland Gospel Mission, a podcast to all nations. Each week, Pastor Keith will deliver a Holy Spirit-inspired message from Highland Southern Baptist Church to the rest of the world. Now, here's Pastor Keith with this week's message. Can we get your Bibles open up to the, the book of James? Chapter 2, we are going to be a little bit in chapter 1. There's a couple of things in chapter 1 that I want to point out just because it kind of helps us slide into what James is trying to say here. A little bit of background first. There were two apostles who were named James. One was the son of Zebedee, or the brother of John, and the brother of John. The other was the son of Alphaeus. This James is neither. It's believed, and there is plenty of evidence to, to lead to this, it is believed that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James didn't become a public figure in Christianity until the mid-40 ADs. So we're talking some uh, potentially five to seven years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's not necessarily when he believed, okay? Not when James necessarily believed, but when, when he became a public figure, James became one of the leaders, the ministers, the church in Jerusalem. He also served on the Jewish council that addressed the problem that Paul had delivered to them about uh, Jews running out and telling people they had to be circumcised in order for them to be, uh, to be saved. So Paul needed an official letter from the church in Jerusalem that said, um, faith in Christ Salvation is found in Christ alone, through faith alone. And the letter was delivered by the Jerusalem Council to, for Paul to be able to take to the churches and say, look, the Jerusalem Council says you are no longer saved by the acts of the law. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one problem we have when we, when we begin to lead into this mentality of, um, you know, we're forgiven for everything, which, is it true? We are. Not all things are profitable, but all things are lawful. Um, Grace covers a multitude of sins. Now, the problem is we have learned as a culture to lean on grace so much so that it justifies our actions. Forgiveness is supposed to be there to relieve us of any stresses or things. We know there are no consequences to that in Christ, but it doesn't change the fact that even though we are saved by grace, we are responsible to act like Christians. The word Christian has become a very loosely used term in my lifetime. Just about anybody gets to claim Christianity. But Christianity is not an institution. Christianity is not a place. Christianity isn't even a person. Christianity is the manifestation of God from us. So people say, well, you know, we need to tell people that they can fall from grace so that they won't take that definition of grace and take advantage of it and do anything that they want to. But honestly, the more accurate way to handle this is make sure that people understand that grace is grace. It's there for people who are genuine Christians to fall on when we stumble. Not to jump on, but to fall on. So it should provide us with... um, the sense of forgiveness. It should provide us with a sense of of no consequences for the mistakes that we make. 
but it doesn't lessen the consequences for us on earth. Just because you can do anything doesn't mean that you should. You get it? So the Bible's clear when it gives us instruction. James' entire theme, when you go through this, his entire theme is built around Christians' actions and responsibilities. Christians' actions and responsibilities. Now, back then, there was it was necessary for a whole lot of clarity to be given in this. Because when you think about this, we have 66 books of the Bible, 27 of the New Testament. What did they have back then? Man, if they were lucky, they had the Old Testament. Wasn't very easy to come by still yet. You had to have access to uh, the Septuagint, the 72 Jews who who uh, translated from the Hebrew to the Greek anyway, they kept that stuff pretty locked up. You could go into a, you could go into a, uh, into a synagogue and get access to it, but you could still only get access to a page here and there. Could you imagine if Jesus came today in Israel, gave his life and died, how long, even with the technology we have today, how long would it take for the absolute truth to cover the entire planet? A while, Right? It'd take a while. I mean, you could reach a lot of people, but you, there's no way you could reach the entire planet. 2,000 years ago, reaching the planet was something that God seen and started with 12 men. You're in this church today as a direct result of one of those 12 apostles. You're here today because one of the 12. Now, I want you to, I want you to chew on that for a second. You may be here today because of Paul. He shared the gospel that created a, a domino effect, if you will, through the future that led from Paul to whoever accepted Christ. You could have come to know Jesus through John. You could have come to know Jesus through James. You could have come to know Jesus through Peter. You could have come to know Jesus through any of those 12 apostles. The question's this. If they didn't accept the responsibility, then where would it have left us? If grace was grace and grace was all we need, and grace is good, and that's all we need, then why? Why were they instructed to carry out acts that were continuing to push forth Christianity? So again, folks, Christianity, it's not a person, place, or a thing. Christianity literally is the active motion of Christianity. Um, and he points it out in here. I'll stop when we get we'll get a little closer to it. And he points something else out in here that was, that was pretty interesting for that as well. So I want to go back and just look at a few verses. We're going to go back to verse 19, read straight through 27, and it'll give us a little bit of our background to when we get into chapter 2. So uh, chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law and the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. 
If anyone thinks himself to be righteous and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This conduct that that I think people who are either young Christians or people who aren't Christians who try to figure this out, it's not the simplest thing to figure out. It's almost, I mean, when you become a Christian, you trust in Jesus Christ, you start those steps in your life of following Christ. A whole lot of the stuff that you need to learn is not learned by reading. Now, you've got to read it, right? I mean, he didn't say, don't read it, just do it. That would be unfair, right? He said, read it and do it. Be a reader and a doer. Read the word of God. And did you notice what he said, the word implanted in those verses? What does it mean to implant something? One, it's dug deep. It's in, deep. Two, when you implant something, it grows. Does it ever stop? Never stops. Does the plant ever go shorter? Or is it supposed to always grow taller? Our faith, Christianity, is supposed to be something that's expanding in our lives. People call it Christian growth. It should be, and it's again, it's not the knowledge. I mean, how many of you guys have ever sat in a classroom and somebody starts asking a bunch of questions and it makes you very uncomfortable because you're afraid somebody's going to point you out and say, answer this question for me. Did you know that if a preacher, a preacher's wife, or a preacher's kid sits down on one of those little things, you know who always gets asked the questions? And I, I'm pretty good at that. I'm going to stand up here and be a little proud for a second. I'm going to tell you, if you sit me down at the table and you ask me some questions, I bet I can answer a lot of them. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Nothing. Until what I've read, what has been implanted... What is consuming me begins to show the result in the manifestation of what that is. We say, well, what that is, kind of hard to explain, because what that is is something completely contrary to what we as human beings are capable of. We are wicked. We have nasty, rotten hearts. If it is not for the, if, if it was not for God stepping into the picture and the faith that he gives us encourages us to be individuals who live out what it is that he's saying to us. And he gets into the he gets kind of harsh in these next in this next chapter. But I think it's necessary harsh. I am not personalizing this to anybody. This is the example that came into my head, so I'm going to use it. Okay? And we'll reinforce it when I get to that verse when I get to those verses here. If somebody asked you, you're a dad, if somebody asked you, what kind of a dad are you? How do we tend to answer that question? I mean, has anybody, would any, would any father in here, if somebody said, what kind of a dad are you, would you say, you know what, I am the worst dad, absolute loser, I don't do anything with my kids, I don't. How many of us would answer the question that way? We all have a definition in our heads of what a good dad is, right? So a guy could say, I'm a good dad just because I go bring home the bacon. Another guy could say, 
Well, I'm, I'm a good dad because I spend a little bit of time with my kid in the evening. But do you think that if you asked somebody else what kind of a dad they were, that you'd get the same answer? Because what we say we know in here is completely different than what people see out here. The delusion, deluding ourselves, the delusion is that we don't see things as they really are. He's, he used the example of a mirror. A man who walks up, sees his natural face in the mirror, as soon as he walks away, he forgets what kind of a person he is. How many of us, how many of us in here are just, apart from Christ, rotten, stinking dirt? We all are. And everything that we know that has improved our lives with our relationships with our spouses, our relationship with our kids, our relationships with other people, with everything that we know that has improved our lives, every one of them has some kind of a link to the day that you said, I believe Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave three days later. It's a direct result. So here's the thing. James is pulling um, a very uncomfortable string. Because again, ask me what kind of a pastor I am. You think I'm going to say that I'm, I'm a stinking pastor? I mean, I try hard. But you might find somebody who'd say I'm a stinking pastor. So he's pulling this very uncomfortable string that's encouraging us as individuals to, one, accept reality. We always said when I was younger, keep it real. If you're struggling with something, you're supposed to pretend you're not struggling with something? I mean, God gave us the Holy Spirit to convict us. The conviction's intention is to turn us away from the person that the natural human being has allowed us to be and to turn towards the individual that Christ wants us to be and to understand that it's not even about us. The more my faith grows, the more my wife benefits. The more my faith grows, the more my kids benefit. The more my faith grows, the more my, my uh, friends benefit. The more my faith grows, the more the church benefits. At what point in any of those statements should I as an individual say, I'm the benefit? The point is we're all growing. We all started off in a place that was not a good place. And through trusting in Christ, however many, it may have been one decision that was made. It may have been a hundred decisions that have been made in an individual's life. The question is, do you know for a fact, thinking about it, that Jesus Christ has impacted your life and the individuals around you without a doubt? And did he do that with knowledge? Or did he do it with effort? Is it the thought that counts? I'm going to say in some cases it's the thought that counts because of a fallen. But I mean, do you think in God's case that it was the thought that counted? Because if it was the thought that counted, guess what he didn't have to do? He didn't have to send a son. Jesus didn't have to give up his throne. Jesus didn't have to experience the things that he experienced. And he certainly didn't have to die on a tree if knowledge was enough. The knowledge of salvation in Christ, even. 
if I walk up to somebody and present the gospel because I shared knowledge with them, it has no benefit to them whatsoever, none. But the act of acting out Christianity brings the gospel, and then the response, which is an act, is where salvation is accomplished. You want to have a Calvinist argument with me? I'm all, I'm all game. I believe that you are an individual that God created in his image, that you have the capacity to do whatever you want to, and he has the ability to grant you that wish. Do whatever you want to, and then accept your consequences. Most of our consequences aren't like consequences from a car wreck. Our consequences usually are consequences that spread out over many, many years. We have several babies in here today. What are the consequences of not acting out Christianity in front of your baby? What's the consequences 20 years from now? But you get a kid the faith, you get a kid the knowledge, you get a kid involved and that kid is going to be impacted for Christ throughout that 20 years. Verse two, or chapter 2. He says, My beloved, or my brethren, do not hold your faith in our, in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, let's hit this just for a second. The ground is level at the cross. Amen? Just stood up here and said, I can prove to you in the Bible 20 ways that every one of us, apart from Christ, are condemned to a sinner's hell for an eternity. Salvation in Christ is only found in Christ. Amen? Now, when we look at these verses, these particular verses, he's pointing out the fact that... My page changes again. It's God telling me to get on with it. Um, in this particular... Uh, these verses, though, why would a church treat a person who is dressed in fine clothes better than they would treat a person who's not dressed in fine clothes. What would be the whole purpose behind that? More money. And I'm telling you, in 20 years of pastoral ministry, with the ministry through the association, I am telling you that money is the motivator for many, many churches. Now, does the church need money to function? Of course it does. But if a, if a church gets to the point where a dude walks in an Italian suit and you treat that person better, meaning you take what he says more seriously, you do what he says, what's the whole reason of doing it? It's because you make the man with the money happy, right? I mean, what are poor people? Literally, I will not name the church. One of our churches, on the opposite side of the county, we had a mobile home ministry. Owned the mobile home. It's in the mobile home court had gone over there several times when I worked for the association, had 28 teenagers from this mobile home court. They were established. And, and our responsibility as an association was not to be the church. The church is its responsibility. We're there to help the churches. So we would go into these mobile home courts, start these huge youth ministries, and then we would take the youth leader from one of the local churches and invite them, and then they slowly start teaching the class and they're building a relationship 
to where they can run a bus over there and they could pick up 26 kids in one mobile home court. And when I called and talked to the pastor about this, I said, we're ready. You send your youth pastor over here. You've got 28 teenagers. Oh, no, we're not interested. What do you mean you're not interested? 26 teenagers that are ready for you to pick up and take to church. No, we don't want them. Well, why not? Because people who live in mobile homes are a drain to our society. His words. Is the church supposed to be in the business to make money? It's not. There is nothing in, that you will find in the scripture. There's personal responsibility when it comes to money. That's between you and God. The church will always do what the church can do with what it has. God can do much more with his church than anybody can, regardless of what it has. We can't be motivated by money. That is a mistake. We have to be motivated by people. Because not only have we made somebody who is rich feel more special, but we've made somebody who isn't rich feel awkward because they didn't get the same treatment as the person who was dressed nice. Verse 5 says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love, it, who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who oppress you and personally, is it not the rich that oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now in this, yeah, he's talking about what we should be, but he's also using himself for a reference. Um, what is grace? When God doesn't give us what we do deserve. What's mercy? When God gives us what we do not deserve. We're unworthy of mercy, yet he showed it anyway. It doesn't matter what transgression. The day that we exposed ourselves to him and said, Lord, I am an open book, I do believe. At that point, life changes for us. And it was all done through the mercy. Did you know without mercy, there would be no grace? Without mercy, there'd be no faith. How many times in our lifetime between us and God have we needed mercy? How many times, honestly, have you committed an act in your life where you honestly could sit there and say, God, I know, I just committed something you could just take me out of here with? Four. You ever done those things in your life? Those things that honestly made you think, oh, I'm going to hell. And God had to go, I'm going to take that out of its place first. And I'm going to show you mercy. 
Look at verse 14. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now, he never answers this question directly. He does answer it indirectly. The answer to the question is no. Again, because faith produces works. If a person has no works, then the person has no faith. Because there's not one thing that the Bible has told us that we ought to know and not do. The transformation of the individual. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The transformation process for us as believers is what brings validity to Christianity. Again, folks, there are still scientists scratching their head. They, they seriously think that we have something wrong with us. They've been looking for foreign genes in our body because they can't figure out why a person won't sleep with as many women as he can. They can't figure out why a human being won't go out and drink himself stupid every weekend. They can't figure out why we don't steal. They can't figure out why we would find something on the street and desire to return it. They can't figure this stuff out. To them, we're weirdos. Biblical word, peculiar. Because we're not supposed to be like the fallen individuals of this world. There are supposed to be distinctions between people who are Christians and not Christians. And the truth is, somebody can call themselves a Christian, just watch them for a little while. I have people who come to me, and they'll ask me about the character of an individual. I'm talking about whether it's a job application or... Never ask a preacher. Never. Don't ask a preacher about somebody's character, and because what do I get to tell you? I get to tell you what I know, Right? How much time do I have to know? Get two hours on Sunday morning, two hours on Sunday night, hour on Wednesday night, out of all the hours in the week? You really want to know whether somebody has character? You know you ask? Their wife. Because she sees them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She knows the good sides and the bad sides. She knows... She knows the time spent praying. She knows the time spent reading the Bible. She knows the time spent in the efforts. You want to know about the character of a man? Ask his wife. Because they're the ones that see it. And we're around people. There are people that I see every week, multiple days a week. Is it important, is it important that they see me conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? It absolutely is. It's necessary. Because that's what makes the people out there go, wait a minute. There is something peculiar about these people. What's the difference? Have you ever had anybody walk up to you and say, how in the world did you ever get through that? That's sheer facts that these people don't get it. They don't know how you get through it. They don't know how you get through the passing of a loved one who's close to you. They don't know how you have the ability to be able to restrain yourself and preventing yourself from just indulging in every lust that we have as human beings. Fifteen says, if a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? 
Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. This is an extremely interesting verse to be placed where it was placed. Doesn't it seem like it's out of place? Why would he go into this conversation about personal responsibility and faith and works, and then he turns around and he, out of the blue... You believe there's one God? You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So the question is this. Jesus, he is the object, right? We'll, we'll say God. You believe that God is one. He's the object, right? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Does the way that we as Christians look at Jesus mimic at all the way that a demon looks at Jesus? Better not, right? We're on two different teams, right? But what we have is a misconception because Jesus Christ being the one that the object, him being the object, okay, from a Christian's perspective, He's my savior. From a demon's perspective, he's death. So to us, he's life. To the demon, he's death. And it begs the question, if we're the object, does our wife see us the same way that the guys at work do? Does your preacher see you the same way that the guys at work do? Because it's been way too typical, folks, in my entire life. Way too typical. Go to church on Sunday. Get up on Monday. Go to work. Sailor's alphabet's used all day long. Might get ourselves involved with an off-color joke every now and then. No damage, right? No harm done. Or is there? I was a truck driver. Fairly new Christian. Had a Caitlin. Was the only, and I think she was somewhere around 18 months old. I'm a man. And I've told you before. 90% of men, it's reported in the country, 90% of men struggle with pornography. And I've said before, the other 10% lied. Because men are men. The question isn't what it is that we're capable of. The question is, what is it that Jesus has actually conditioned us for? The only difference is, a non-Christian will indulge in that. A Christian will do everything that they can to keep themselves away from it because we perceive the damage that will be done as a result of those actions. What is it for me? What's the consequences? Not only am I no longer the pastor here, but I'm probably the pastor nowhere. Right? 
What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my personality? What does that mean for my character? What does that mean for what other people think about me? It matters. So him pointing out the fact that the demons also believe and they shudder was just to point out the fact that you are not who you think you are. You are who your wife knows you are. You are who the people who are closest to you know you are. Why? Because you're not what you say, you are what you do. And when we get to the point that we can recognize that the things that we are doing are contrary to God's will, then we have what we need to be able to respond to it. And we don't respond to it in knowledge, we respond to it in action. Verse 20 says, but you are willing to recognize, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, it was accredited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? For just as body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Where would you be today without the stories of the Old Testament prophets? You think it would make a big difference? I guarantee it'd make a big difference. How, somebody asked me how. How do I know? Ask me. Because Peter recorded it for us. That all the Old Testament prophets come to realize that all of the things that they were receiving were not for their benefit, but for ours. Ours. So when Abraham offered up Isaac, that was without the promise of salvation through Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, people in the Old Testament were saved by the same thing that people in the New Testament are saved by. Abraham believed God, it was accredited to him as righteousness. So Abraham's faith is what saved him. What saves you in the New Testament? It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. The only difference is, in the Old Testament, God said, if, if I talk to you, and you believe me, you will act upon that belief, and through acting upon that belief, you will glorify me. The Passover, or uh, the, uh, the sacrifice that was made every year in Jerusalem. Written in the law. They had to go, and they had to present sacrifices based on the sins of the family. That was the law. Was it okay just to know that and not do it? Where was the faith in this? Some of these people lived six, seven, eight, nine, ten days' journeys away from Jerusalem. They proved what they believed when they packed up the animals they had to sacrifice, they packed up their belongings, and they made the trip. That was the act of faith. God does not delight in the blood of goats and bulls. Those sacrifices had no benefit to salvation whatsoever. None. It was just instructions that God gave somebody and said, hey, if you believe me, you're going to do this. 
if you really have faith in me, you're going to do this. And the biggest influencer in our lives should be the Holy Spirit. It's the only foolproof plan that there is. Jesus said that I come not just to bring life, but to bring it more abundant or at its fullest. Are you living a full life? And if the answer to the question is no, then I would encourage you and challenge you to find out where the sin is in your life where you've refused to turn away, where you've refused the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you just avoided responsibility. That is where you will find the problem. 100% of the time. As a Christian. Look, in closing, it's important for us as individuals to walk the line that the Bible gives us. And the line that the Bible gives us is accept grace when you make mistakes, but repent and turn away from whatever it is that you committed. That is accepting the gift of God while at the same time accepting personal responsibility. It comes down to that. Everything comes down to that. If you're here today, you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. You can come up here and tell me, and you can call me on the phone, tell me before you leave. We'll figure out something, however you're comfortable to do it when you've got time to do it. Can't save you, but I can certainly talk to you more about the one who can. But I believe, if not all of us, most of us in this place are believers. And I think that you know the line I'm talking about. Because it is the line that it is the line that, again, it's not a line that if you fall off of, God's going to hit you. It's what grace is for. But it is the line that he expects us to get back up and walk. How many times has he said, walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Should you feel pressure to be perfect? No. Should you feel pressure to improve? Yeah. And if you can't hear the Holy Spirit given those points on how to improve, then there's a much deep, much deeper rooted problem there. Because it really is just as simple. Hearing what God has to say. Listening to what God has to say. And then just being and doing what God has to say. We are the church. We are representatives of Christ on earth. And that is a huge responsibility. And what hangs in the balance? Souls. Quality life. Full life. We make our choices. We accept our consequences. If our choice is for Christ, then the consequences very easily become blessings. Thanks for listening. For more information about becoming a Christian, discipleship, or if you have prayer requests, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. We look forward to hearing from you. As always, have a blessed week.
Island Southern Baptist Podcast is produced by Zach Link with preaching by Keith Perrin. Music provided by Pixabay under Creative Commons. 